morning uh, for their pastors, their leaders, their congregations, uh, for the unsaved who are sitting in churches all around our valley um, this morning. And then we'll pray for the reading of the word and for Pastor John as he comes to teach and preach. So join me in prayer. Father, we do come before you now and um, as we just sang, uh, you are worthy, uh, Father, and we praise you for that. We pray this morning, Lord, for uh, the churches around the valley uh, that are preaching the gospel. Father, we think of Harvest and Westside, Restoration Church, the Tandem Pioneer, Memorial Bible, the Cross Church. Father, we lift these churches up to you this morning. Father, we ask that as their pastors have prepared this week um, from your word uh, to teach and to preach, Father, we pray that their words would be effective, uh, that they would not only reach the minds of the people in the churches, but their hearts, that by uh, proclaiming the gospel and preaching, it might change the hearts of uh, all who would be in the congregations. Pray that your spirit would be active and working as they preach this morning. Father, we pray for the leaders uh, of these churches, and we just pray, Father, that they would be servant leaders, uh, that they would have a desire to shepherd and to help lead um, the people closer to Christ, uh, that their leadership would be one that's just a reflection of uh, what Christ has called us to do in our love for your church. So may the leaders of the churches, uh, may they love their people like you've loved us. And Lord, we pray for the people in the congregations this morning. Lord, those who need to be lifted up, we pray that you would do so. Father, those who need to be convicted, we pray that you would do so. Father, we pray that uh, you would continue to grow your church in this valley, uh, that the people uh, in these churches would uh, have a desire to make you known, uh, not only in the church, but in their workplaces, in their homes. Uh, that, Father, we might be uh, vessels for the gospel to go out each day uh, as you've called us. And Lord, we pray for the unsaved uh, that are sitting in the churches this morning. And we just ask for your grace and your mercy. We ask that you would open their eyes, that they might see for the first time the glories of Christ, the work of the cross. And Father, by seeing those things, that they might be saved to the praise of your glorious grace. And Lord, as we come now to the reading of your word, Father, we know that your word uh, instructs, it corrects, it guides, and we pray that it would do so. And Father, as Pastor John comes to preach this morning, we ask that you would bless uh, this time. Pray that you would help him speak clearly, help him to communicate the things that you've uh, given him to speak this morning, and that The words that he would speak would be uh, your words uh, directed for us, and that by hearing, uh, we might be changed and conformed more and more into the image of Christ. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Good morning, Sun Valley. 
I have come to read from God's word this morning, <clears throat> specifically the last stanza of Psalm 119, verses 169 through 176, and I'll give you a minute to turn there. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you, and let your rules help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. The word of the Lord. Good morning, friends. You heard that right. It was uh, the last stanza of Psalm 119. It's been an amazing journey, hasn't it? When we started Psalm 119, things were mostly normal. And since that time, things have changed, haven't they? In many ways. <clears throat> Normally, the longer you do something, the easier it gets, right? It, whether it's your job or a hobby or a sport, the more you do it, the, the easier it becomes. You get used to it. You, you become proficient. You even get to the point where you can do these things almost without even trying, right? You're so used to it. It just becomes natural for us. One of the interesting things about the Christian life is that growing in Christ doesn't make the Christian life any easier. Being a Christian for a longer time doesn't make being a Christian easier. Have you noticed that, Christian friend? This is a fact that's important to grasp if you're going to grow in Christ and maintain faithfulness. The reality is, is when you first come to Christ, it seems that uh, your faith in Jesus Christ is, is uh, more dependent, more, more interested, more connected than when or after you've been with Christ. Hence, you remain, when you're early on in your Christian life, more diligent, more circumspect, more concerned about things. And it seems in my pastoral experience that those that, that seem to struggle with the consistent Christian life are those who've been Christians forever, who spent a ton of time in church and know the Bible verses and can throw out answers left and right. So here we are closing in on the end of Psalm 119, and what a great study it's been. And we're now entering this final stanza of the 22 stanzas 
And this is the perfect ending, as you would expect, having studied with us now through all 22 stanzas. This is a critically important stanza for you, Christian friend. It's important to note that there is a difference between this final stanza and the rest of the stanzas we've already studied. And just by looking back at the 21st stanza, you'll see a difference in how the author's talking, how he's thinking about God, about his word, about his own life of faith. And so it's important to see that, that difference. It's important to recognize why he's changed his tact here at the end of this great uh, chapter in Psalms. All 21 previous stanzas proclaim the author's commitment to obeying God's word, to loving God's word, to enjoying God, to valuing the word of God. But here in this final stanza, it, it kind of shifts gears. Here he states his need and claims no confidence and even declares his lost condition. Do you see that at the end, the very last sentence? I'm a lost sheep. Constantly in need of God's grace is what's on the mind of this author now. This is such an important stanza to end with because of what can happen to the person who begins to gain a misguided confidence in their Christian life because maybe of their faithful spiritual disciplines or maybe their years of Christian service or time in church or small group or what have you. Their, their familiarity with Christianity and so the Holy Spirit, knowing his people, includes passages like this from time to time throughout Scripture to kind of flash out the warning signals for us, which we should be grateful for. So this chapter here is all about the, the Christian life and its connection to the Word of God. This last stanza is all about the importance of a a dependence on God and his word. It's for those who think they, they have the Christian life down pat, like us at Sun Valley Church. This author who has proven his love for God and his word demonstrates here the critical importance of an attitude of dependence throughout the Christian life from beginning to end, especially when you think you have it figured out. Last month, we had our 18th anniversary as a church. Can you believe that? Many of you have been here the entire time. Some of you have not. But 18 years going at this together. It's been a personal blessing to me to see all the wonderful spiritual growth and progress and maturity in the faith that exists here at Sun Valley Church because of the acceptance of and commitment to the Word of God. If you've grown in your faith since you've been here, it's because your heart and soul have been washed by the Word weekly. It's because God in His grace and mercy has granted you spiritual vibrancy and progress as you've allowed the Word of God and the Spirit of God to just saturate your heart and mind with the Word. When you do that, you grow spiritually. And here we have 
this psalm repeatedly describing the benefits of being saturated by the word being played out in your life right before your own eyes. Uh, this last stanza contains a subtle warning for us, for Sun Valley Church. I hope you hear it this morning. We must heed this warning, church. We must heed it. Like the son of the father in Proverbs, we need to listen closely to the wisdom, wisdom that's given here in this final stanza. So put aside all distractions this morning with me and maybe right now say a short prayer that your heart and mind would be receptive to what the Holy Spirit would have for you in these last eight verses that are so critical to your spiritual health. Today I wanna to show you from the stanza the critical importance of embracing a persistently dependent attitude. I want to clearly communicate the necessity of constantly checking your attitude to ensure that it is humble and committed to always running to Jesus for help, never becoming complacent, always recognizing your need. That's my goal this morning. One of the great fears that we in leadership at Sun Valley Church had when we first planted this church was that the love for the Lord and the love for his word could fade, just like so many other good churches have done in Christian history. I mean, how many churches are you aware of that have massive edifice, but nobody there? This very building, we received it because the church that was once vibrantly occupying this building died off to six people. They lost their interest. They became complacent. My hope and prayer, of course, is that that never happens here. That we always remain faithful and committed to the word. But these things happen inevitably if we become complacent. If we think we've arrived. If we think that we've got this Christian thing down pat. I want to assure you that our love for the scriptures doesn't have to end with a stale or apathetic relationship with God or a dry and ineffective church life. Just because we're committed to the truths of scripture doesn't mean we have to end that way, which so many have before. We don't have to slip into self-sufficient, prideful indifference. We don't have to become complacent Christians who are callous to God, callous to his work. And this stanza is a great course corrector for us. And it begins with the need for humility as a church and as individuals within the church. The need for humility. The psalmist sees the danger here and concludes his amazing psalm with this clear warning signal, these eight verses. It seems that this author wouldn't have sided with that that self-congratulating Pharisee of Jesus's parable in Matthew 5, but he would have sided with the humble publican sinner who stood far off beating his chest, pleading with God to have mercy on his soul. That's who the author of the Psalm would have sided with. In verse 175 of Psalm 119, we see the basis 
for the famous response to the Westminster Catechism question about the chief end of man. Look at verse 175. Let my soul live and praise you, and let your rules help me. The chief end of man, the question goes, what is the chief end of man? And the answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Let me live that I may praise your name, praise you. So how do you glorify God and enjoy him forever? How does that happen? Well, it begins with believing the gospel and continues by making much of Jesus the rest of your life. As John Piper said, you glorify God by enjoying him forever. First, you believe the gospel, which is God became a man and lived a perfect life among us so that he could credit the merit of that perfection to all who would believe on him. And in order to pay for our sins, he died on the cross and rose from the grave. That's the gospel in a nutshell. Then, of course, you live the rest of your life making much of him instead of making much of yourself. You, you spend your life praising him, worshiping him, and living as though your life depends on him and praising him for all that he's done. The last verse in this Psalm 176, I've gone astray like a lost sheep, reminds us that this praise, if it's truly God-glorifying praise, must come from those who see themselves as poor, weak, lost, helpless, straying sinners. Those who understand their need for a gracious and merciful Savior. That's who actually bring honor and praise to God. A life that exalts and glorifies God is a life that is based on a humble poverty of spirit that Jesus taught in Matthew 5. Not the Christian who's got it all together and is hitting on all cylinders. Now, don't get me wrong here. Don't misunderstand me. God loves a faithful believer. But God is praised and glorified when we humbly say ourselves as we are and come to him by faith in dependence and hope. This stanza immediately identifies the need for humility in the very first verse. Look at verse 169. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Understanding the need for understanding. Do you understand your need for understanding? Why do you understand the gospel and your neighbor or co-worker who may be a lot smarter than you does not? What makes the gospel seem like the best news you've ever heard but sound like nonsense to your unbelieving friends and neighbors? What is that? Well, 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us this. The natural, person, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritual discerned. This is what one verse, verse 169 is saying. Understanding comes from God. It's a gift from God. Understanding spiritual things requires God, the author of all spiritual things, to grant you understanding, which is why he's asking for it in verse 169. Otherwise, everything spiritual remains nonsensical. It, it doesn't make sense to the natural man who does not possess the Holy Spirit. They don't understand spiritual things. It's, they laugh at them. Even people with high IQs can't seem to grasp the simple truths of the gospel. It's, it's stunning to, to me. Sherry and I were watching 
interviews with the actors from the great new series on the life and ministry of Jesus Christ called The Chosen. And we were amazed at the spiritual blindness of one of the actors in particular. He played Nicodemus in the story, uh, but demonstrated a blindness to the gospel when he was being interviewed about his character, Nicodemus. If you watch the show, and I recommend you do, it's, it's amazing, uh, you can hardly get a better idea of how Nicodemus must have been feeling when you watch him act out the struggle that Nicodemus had with understanding who is this Jesus. The actor did a phenomenal job at that. But in the real life interview, it's obvious that this actor doesn't understand the gospel or the person of Jesus Christ. And I'm thinking there watching this interview, how did you pull that off without understanding the gospel? It's because God must grant understanding. That's how. So if you think of it, pray for the actor to come to know Jesus. He's got, I think, six more seasons to record and hear the gospel every day as he's acting out the person of Nicodemus. His name's Eric Avari, if you're interested. Pray for his conversion. Pray that the Holy Spirit will have mercy on him. The need for, for humility is also seen in verse 170. Look at verse 170. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. <clears throat> Deliverance assumes being in trouble, doesn't it? In fact, the person who doesn't see themselves as being in trouble, never seeks for deliverance, which is one of the frustrating things with people who don't see their own problems, which is why we have interventions. No, really, you got a problem. No one asks for help who doesn't see his need for it. But here the author's crying out to God for deliverance. Why? Because he sees his need for deliverance. This is a basic element of humility. Do you see your need? We must always keep our need before our eyes. Next, we see um, humility in, or the need for humility in verse 171. It says, my lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. Teaching assumes what? Ignorance, right? It's what my father-in-law, who used to be an elementary school teacher, used to come home all the time when we were visiting, and he said, that I was out stamping out ignorance today, you know. <laughs> you teachers know what that feels like. The author knew his need to be taught. Do you? Do you come to God's word with an open mind and expecting God to teach you something? Or do you come with a critical spirit looking for something to judge? What's your attitude right now? Lord, teach me something? Or when's Pastor John going to slip up? He's going to say something dumb. I know it. <laughs> Believe it or not, there are always both types in every congregation. I'd encourage you to come every Sunday 
and even every day to your own reading and study of the word, having prayed that God would teach you something, teach you something that you need to learn. The second thing I want to point out to you that's the second half of the warning here besides pursue humility, the need for humility is this, the need for a gospel response. The need for a gospel response. In the final verse of this great psalm, we have a statement that has caused some controversy in the commentary world. And that, that statement is, I have strayed like a lost sheep. Some believe that the author here is, is not talking about salvation. He's talking about being in trouble with enemies and, and he needs care and protection from God. And, that, and that's what this is saying. But others believe that he's speaking about himself, one who is in constant need of God's grace and not just in need of care and protection, but in need of God's saving grace daily. I'm with that group. I believe that's what's being said here in this last stanza. Otherwise, the stanza doesn't make a whole lot of sense and it's a horrible way to close the, the, the psalm itself. It's the same kind of language, I believe, that Isaiah used in chapter 53, verse six. All we, like sheep, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Every one of us has gone astray and continue to drift, even though we know Christ. Every one of us are in need of a Savior on whom the Lord lays our iniquity. Even those of us who have grown up in the church, who have attended church for years, even those of us who are consistent in our devotional disciplines, even those of us who give to the church, serve in the church, we all need a Savior on whom our iniquities can be laid daily. Which is why we repeat this for you every single Sunday. Our time of confession, corporate confession, is not to remind you that you're horrible, it's to remind you that you need a Savior. So that you'll run to him. So that you'll remain dependent on him. Apart from the grace of God, we are lost, straying, hopeless sheep. Martin Luther spoke of believers as simul justus ec peccator, meaning at the same time justified and sinner. Justified and sinner. Luther commented on this verse. 176, like this. This verse is extremely emotional and full of tears, for truly we are all thus going astray, so that we must pray to be visited, sought, and carried over by the most godly shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God blessed forever. Amen. That is where we are, even as Christians. So responses to our spiritual needs that are in line with the gospel are what I'm calling gospel responses. The, 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 kind, of, the kind of responses that an understanding of the gospel prompts. That's what I mean by a gospel response here. So let's look at the first gospel response that we see in this chapter. Besides humility, what's the first gospel response? says it in verse 169, 170, and 174. If you're taking notes, 169. Let my cry come before you. 
170, let my plea come before you. 174, I long for your salvation. Crying, pleading, longing is the first response, the gospel response. These verses are what a gospel response sounds like. He is asking for salvation in the biblical sense. It is what we pray for concerning our lost friends, neighbors, family members, that they will experience. We, we pray for God to act. We instinctively know that unless God acts, we and our unsaved friends and acquaintances will never be saved, right? Martin Luther began the 95 Theses that were posted on the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg by writing this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he meant that the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. And you thought it was just a prayer that you prayed in junior high camp. <laughs> what Martha Luther meant is that there is never a moment, even after we are saved, that we can stop thinking of ourselves as lost sheep. Not that we repeatedly lose our salvation, but that we maintain a position of dependence, seeing our need for what it is. The author of Psalm 119 ends this magnum opus with the question, are you longing for the salvation that only God can supply? Let me ask you, are you longing for the salvation that only God can supply? Or have you arrived? Have you got this all figured out? If you aren't longing, it's because you don't have an accurate view of your need. You somehow think that you can pull this off on your own. Evidently, you believe that you're still good enough in comparison to the others around you. Even if you're already a Christian, you've decided that you can handle it from here on out. Thank you, Jesus. See you later. See you in heaven. No, that's not how it goes, is it? I don't know if you heard this, but we were told that COVID-19 shot would take two injections to be effective, right? You've got to have two injections. Last Thursday, they said you're going to have to have three. One 12 months from now. I don't know what to think about that. But I do know what to think about our ongoing constant need for Jesus. I'm concerned that those who choose to get shots will be getting them from now till they die for COVID. And that's exactly what we need from Christ. Persistent, ongoing Jesus injections. <laughs> Embracing Jesus isn't just a one and done thing, right? For some reason that got into the church. That, well, you, you prayed your prayer, now get on with your life, right? No, embracing Jesus as your Savior and Lord requires daily renewal, daily interest, daily pursuit. Jesus isn't interested in just a one-time inoculation that will get you to heaven. He doesn't offer that. He's interested in a daily, minute-by-minute, dependent relationship with his people. This is what the psalmist is saying. We must think of ourselves, even as redeemed people of God, in these desperate terms. The second gospel response is seen in verse 171 and 172. 
171. My lips will, for, will pour forth praise. 72. My tongue will sing of your word. Praising and singing is the second gospel response. This is always the response to good news, isn't it? Everyone praises the things they love, whether it's nature, sports, stamp collecting, family, whatever. They praise it. They, they sing about it. They, they shout. When someone is enjoying anything, most people around them know it, don't they? When you come across something you like, everybody near you says, ah, he likes that. They, they stand and shout, sing and dance. This is what happens when people encounter good news. I, I know most of you aren't soccer fans, and I've prayed for you, but <laughs> soccer fans are notorious for this kind of behavior, aren't they? To, to the annoying level. <laughs> you know, they, you, you watch a, an English Premier League game, and it's, I mean, before COVID, it was constant singing, dancing, throwing stuff, and it's like, the whole thing was, a, was an act. And it was, there's, if, you, if you don't know this, they're singing to the players to encourage them. They're, they're singing about their love for the game. It's, it's an emotional experience to watch a soccer game. And I like baseball, but it's not like baseball. It's like, when's that guy going to get a hit? You know, there's two hits today. Sorry, Jesse, I, I, he's about ready to leave. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, that's right, Jordan. The, what's the wave all about? You don't see a wave at a soccer game. It's because people are already engaged at a soccer game and football, baseball, I gotta do something, let's do a wave. <laughs> right? But this is how we act when we encounter good news. We sing, we shout, we dance, we celebrate. From the point of our conversion to Christ and on begins a life of praising and singing and celebrating about the God who has saved us. This is what we see in 171 and 172, my lips will pour forth praise. My tongue will sing of your word. This is worship. But worship isn't just doing whatever comes naturally or whatever we can creatively think up. No. Notice how the psalmist here says that, that his worship is structured according to God's word. Verse 172, my lips will pour forth praise for all your commandments are right. And in verse 171, uh, my, my, uh, 171, it says, My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Where is he getting the information for praising God? From God. What this means here is that God informs our worship. God's statutes guide us as his people when we come to praise him. You know, worshipers have struggled with this concept for millennia. And not all that happens in Christian churches is God-honoring worship. 
In the Old Testament, we have a few famous examples of God judging certain individuals who didn't abide by God's prescribed means of worship. You've heard of them, Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10, Uzziah in 2 Chronicles 26, were a couple of cases that scare us when we read them, right? Why? Because God cares about our worship. Worshiping in spirit and truth, Jesus says in John 4. What he meant was genuine worship flows from an affected heart, but is based on God's truth. It flows from an affected heart. The, the Holy Spirit's done something in me, and I want to respond, but that response is guided by the truth of God's word. The, the Bible prescribes what Christian worship ought to be. God does grant leeway, some leeway, but not everything is permissible in church. We can't just think up something to do here. Let's have people stand on the side here and draw pictures while I'm preaching. Let's chase chickens down this aisle. Let's, you know, have the center aisle reserved for ribbon, you know, people with ribbons on sticks. Let's do that. No, <laughs> that's not worship. Here's what's permissible, in fact, prescribed in Scripture. Singing, reading, praying, and preaching. That's what's prescribed worship. Here's the third gospel response that I want you to see in this closing stanza. Choosing. Now, all you Calvinists can settle down. I want you to hear me out. This is a third gospel response, choosing, verse 173, let your hand be ready to help me for I have chosen your precepts. What's he saying? Well, let me, let me lay the groundwork here and then I'll explain to you. We've all gone astray like lost sheep, right? That's what it says in verse 176. We're all born going astray. No one has to teach you to go astray, do they? No, it, it happens naturally. But thankfully, we have a shepherd who specializes in lost sheep, those who've gone astray, that's, that's what the shepherd does. Jesus said this in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's us. So when the Son of Man does his work in an individual, listen, it affects the will of that individual. That is critical. It's a gospel response, choosing. But where's the choosing come from? I just told you. When the Son of Man does his work in an individual, it affects the will of that individual. It's been said that the only people who aren't doing what they want are genuine Christians. At regeneration, the Holy Spirit transforms our will to cause us to choose him. Our choosing is responsive, not initiating. Jesus told his disciples in John 15 that they didn't choose him, but he chose them. Remember that? In other words, we're not saved because we chose Jesus. We're saved because Jesus chose us. So do you know how you're going to live a holy life and do so until the day you die? Do you know how you're going to keep on keeping on? Do you know how you will not become indifferent in the Christian life? Do we know as a church how we can keep from being stale and dry 
and calloused group of people, the Holy Spirit grants us the will and the power to live a holy life. He, he chose us to a holy life, Paul told the Thessalonians. It be, if God began a good work, what did Philippians 1, 6 say? He will complete it. So the Christian life begins at regeneration and is totally dependent on God for initiating grace throughout. We need God's strength not only to grow in holiness, but also to be interested in doing so. Paul said in Colossians 1.29, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that powerfully works within me. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Where's it coming from? Him. It's impossible to live a holy life by your human determination, friend. You'll never have it figured out. You'll never have arrived. The, 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 psalm, the greatest psalm in the Bible, the longest chapter in Scripture, ends with this. You are dependent. The prerequisite, the prerequisite is God's willing, God's choosing, then our choosing. You remember Paul gave his own testimony concerning this struggle in Romans 7. Remember that? The things I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, I do. Who's going to save me from this body of death? Verse 24, he asks. And then what's he say in verse 25? Look on the overhead. Wretched man that I am. This is Paul the Apostle speaking. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how. That's who. John 15, 5, Jesus said exactly this same thing that the psalmist has been saying in this last stanza. Without me, you can do nothing. It's kind of discouraging and wonderfully encouraging, isn't it? In order to understand the gospel, we must have Jesus. In order to be saved, we must have Jesus. In order to worship God, we must have Jesus. In order to live a holy life that pleases God, we must have Jesus. In order to persevere to the end of life, we must have Jesus. And if we have Jesus, we can do all things, right? Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's pray. What a Savior you are, Lord Jesus, who not only transforms our will, saves our soul, but strengthens us all along the way to the end for our joy and your glory. We bow in worship 
at your feet now, Holy Spirit, Father and Son, as you have accomplished this work in us. Bring it to fruition, we pray, in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.